0: It's a a joy and an honor to be able to be here to bring God's word to you today, especially on a monumental day like this, for our pastor, 55 years of faithful ministry. Most men uh, in the UK and the US, the average pastor at length is three years, 55 years. And as well as celebration today, I think reflection is appropriate. I can imagine Pastor John looking back a lot this week and thinking about the years that have gone by. I don't imagine he's thinking a lot about himself. I imagine he's thinking about you, the church. I imagine he's thinking about where this church has come from, a chapel with a few chicken coops to the number of people who are sat here today. So I wonder if today we might enter in and participate uh, with him in that idea of reflection by considering where we are as a church and for each of us to consider the role that we play here in Grace Life and in the wider church. So to help us begin that, let me ask you a question. If your pastors were to write you a letter, so if Pastor John was to write to us or Pastors Mike and Phil were to write to us as Grace Life, expressing their feelings about our behavior, about our witness, about our weaknesses, about our strengths, what would that letter contain? Think about that for a moment. How would someone who loves the church very much sum up this church, Grace Church? How would they sum up Grace Life? And then more importantly, how would they sum up your contribution to that? We've seen over the past few weeks Pastor Mike opening up the book of Malachi which is a rendition of a group of people who haven't been faithful they have offered up vapid, listless, weak completely worthless worship would that be something uh, that characterizes us? well I really hope not or would that letter that's written to us be one of loving encouragement one that says well done, keep going one that recognizes this church as a faithful church? Well, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that our pastors would write what resembles Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. And it's that letter that we're going to look at today. So you can begin turning to chapter 1 of Thessalonians. And as you do, remember that this is a fledgling church. We get the account of the church's formation back in Acts 17. And at this point, when we read this letter to the first Thessalonians, uh, the church is about a year old. And in Acts 17, it chronicles the church's inception through the work of Paul and Silas, and then by extension, Timothy. And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians from Corinth, Acts 18, following the report that Timothy brought to him, having spent time there with the church at Thessalonica. So let's look together at what Paul says to this new church, and we'll read the whole section of verses 1 to 10 of chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, but we'll focus in on verses 2 to 10. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, So that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And today, as we look at this section of Scripture in First Thessalonians chapter one, verses two to ten, Paul gives uh, gives thanks for four characteristics of a model church that must challenge us to excel still more. Paul gives us four characteristics of a model church that must challenge us to excel still more, and those characteristics are this: the character of a model church. We'll see that in verses two to three. Then the calling of a model church, verses four to five. The conduct of a model church, verses 6 to 8. And the commitment to Christ of a model church, verses 9 to 10. So look at verse 2 with me. And we will consider the first characteristic of a model church, which funnily enough, is character. And first, just briefly as we begin, it's important to note the character of Paul's thanksgiving there. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul says that he and his companions are always giving thanks to God for the Thessalonians. And this phrase is the main idea for the whole chapter. Everything else hangs off of this idea of him giving thanks before God for them. Everything else is an exemplification or an intensification or an explanation of that idea. Paul is giving thanks to God for them all. And from the outset, we see that God is primary. We give thanks to God. And Paul makes it clear that although he'll go on to commend the Thessalonians, that it is God who the thanksgiving is directed to. God is the author of all human success. So whatever comes next, we must caveat that with the recognition that all of this is only possible because of his sovereign design and his sovereign grace. And Paul is consistent in his thanksgiving for them. If you flip over to chapter 2, verse 13, he says... For this reason, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it. And then over in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face? This reveals the tenor of Paul's letter, doesn't it? It's one of commendation. It's one of thanksgiving to this wonderful church. And the rest of the verses are explaining the reason and the source of his thanksgiving for them. And we might wonder, were these some kind of superhuman people? Some kind of super spiritual people that we can't possibly equate ourselves to, this isn't relevant for us because they were way better than us. Well, one commentator says this, I think it's quite funny. He says, there is no reason to suppose that the Thessalonian church consisted of any less odd a collection of characters than the average congregation today. That made me feel pretty good. So let's move on and let's focus now on the character of this church that Paul is speaking of. Look there in uh, chapter one, verse three. So firstly, Paul was always making mention of them in his prayers. Secondly, he is constantly bearing in mind or remembering them in the presence of our God and Father. And what he's remembering primarily are three elements. There are three elements he's bearing in mind that sum up everything else, that are at the core of the character of a model church. Faith, hope, and love. A triad that we're familiar with. And these three elements are mentioned later on again in, in actually in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians verse 8. And Paul says this, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And these remind us of what? Not just the armor of God in Ephesians 6, but Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen. He finishes by saying, but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is applying these three critical characteristics to the church. He says, I see these things among you, but not just the idea of these things. This isn't just theoretical. Paul sees the practical outworking which is the common theme throughout all of this. He sees it present in the Thessalonians' actions. They were not just knowledgeable and biblically literate. They put what they knew into practice. So let's look at that first one there in verse three, your work of faith. Now to help us grasp what Paul means for each of these, I think it's helpful for us to replace that word of with uh, produced by, So, for the first one, Paul says he is constantly bearing in mind or remembering their works which are produced by their faith. We know Paul doesn't mean it the other way around, that their faith is produced by works, because Paul makes a flat denial that faith is the result of works in so many places. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 For by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves. And he goes on to say, so that no one can boast. No man can boast about his faith and salvation because they're gifts from God that he did nothing to attain. And here, Paul is in perfect alignment with what James says in chapter 2, verse 26, that faith without works is dead. Paul says here that their genuine faith in Christ has produced works has resulted in not just pious, religious, or empty acts like we've seen in Malachi, but a real, authentic outworking of that faith in how they interact with the world, in how they interact with the church, in how they speak with unbelievers. And he's going to explain that in more detail later on in the chapter. So first of all, their faith produces work. Secondly, their labor of love. That's the second characteristic. The the word labor here means toil or work, to do something that is burdensome. And there's a real sense of expenditure with this word, the idea of pouring oneself into something, sweating over it. And Paul says he is constantly, repeatedly praying, thinking, and bringing to mind their love which produced such a work ethic. And this is the same word that Paul uses in chapter two, verse nine. He says, for you recall, brethren, our labor, that's that same word, and hardship. How working night and day, so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So what does Paul have in mind when he says this to them? I don't think he's thinking about their nine to five. Paul has in mind, at least when he uses that word of himself as his gospel witness to them. He says, I labored amongst you despite persecution, despite opposition, despite all of the struggle. I toiled and I strived to present the gospel to you so that you might understand and follow Christ. Night and day he worked, meeting with people, discipling, counseling, preaching, encouraging, exhorting. He did the work of an evangelist amongst them. So when Paul speaks of their labor of love, he means their gospel witness amongst the people they lived. Just look at verse eight. Their witness spread just beyond Thessalonica to the surrounding provinces. Their labor of love extended far beyond even just the small body of believers there. But I do think he also has in mind their work in the church. If you turn over to chapter four, verse nine, Paul says this amazing thing. Now imagine your pastor saying this about you. Now as as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What a wonderful thing for a pastor to say about his church. No one has to teach you how to love the body, how to love the church. This is part of their labor of love that they exerted themselves to love the church, to support the body of Christ. And remember that this happened in a place that opposed the gospel so strongly that Paul and Silas had to leave for fear of their lives. Struggle and toil are things that we so easily complain about, but they were a galvanizing agent amongst the Thessalonians that strengthened their love for one another. So Paul says, I'm thankful for your hard work in love. Their love for Christ produced this laboring underburden. And lastly, their steadfastness of hope. Paul concludes the triad with a hope that produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, as one Greek dictionary says, is the ability to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. And some synonyms for that are patience, endurance, fortitude, perseverance. So Paul is saying that hope produces these things. And we just mentioned that the labor that they were under in the face of opposition and trial. And Paul says to them that the steadfastness they have exhibited so far comes from their relationship with Christ, their hope, their hope in Christ, as we see that in the verse. And actually in Paul's second letter, he commends them further for their perseverance. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. It's just a few pages to chapter one and verse four. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, and look at what he says. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you amongst the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions with which you endure. Paul says, when I think of you, I think of a church that is persevering under much trial, who are fighting the good fight, who are withstanding the attacks you're facing with vigor and determination, And that the thing which drives you is the hope that salvation brings, the hope that is tied up in Christ, that he will come again. Their eschatological perspective was strong. They were looking forward to Christ's return. And in fact, they were so focused on it that it became a source of discouragement for them that Paul has to correct in chapter 4 because they were worried because of their current struggles that they were in the tribulation and they had missed the rapture. But Paul's initial commendation to them is that their hope in Christ, which has kept them so strong to this point, is what they should focus on. And it's interesting to note that um, Paul is reversing the order or changing the order that he uses in 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen, which finishes with love. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But when he speaks to the Thessalonians, he finishes with hope. And he focuses and emphasizes hope. What a great pastor. He knows what they need. So let's pause and consider. Do we see these characteristics in our church? Do we see this triad bearing such fruit among us as a congregation? What about in our own personal lives? Does our love for Christ drive our labor in evangelism? Or for us to care for our brothers and sisters around us? Do we love the church like the Thessalonians loved the church? When we struggle... And trial comes, do we lean into it and because of our hope in Christ stand strong and persevere? Or are we tempted to complain and moan and become dejected? It's interesting, isn't it, that each of the words that Paul uses insinuates some kind of difficulty or persecution. This is the expected life of the Christian. So as we reflect today, let's consider our first first our Christian character. How do we match up here? What areas do we need to work on? But that was only the beginning. Paul has much more for us to consider. And he gives thanks for this model church also for their calling. And we see that in verse four. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And now Paul gives thanks for something that he is certain about. Something that he is sure he sees in them. Uh, and, and that is their, God's choice of them. If you have an NASB or an ESV, it will say his choice, which is inferred from what Paul's saying. But if you have the LSB, it will say something a little bit closer to the Greek, which says, knowing brothers, beloved by God, your election. Paul gives thanks for the people there at Thessalonica because he is absolutely sure that they are elect. He even calls them brethren beloved by God. And the particular Greek word he uses there, which is translated beloved, only occurs three times in the New Testament, and they're all used by Paul. And it's indicative of his great love for them that began in the past and continues on until now. They are beloved brethren, one in Christ. Paul has no doubt about their salvation. And the word Paul uses there uh, sounds a bit like our word uh, election, it's the word echelogaine, which literally means a special choice or a selection or that which is chosen or selected. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 9, 11 when he's recounting God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau. And it's the same word that Peter uses in a similar context with our passage. In his second letter to those persecuted believers in Asia Minor, in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, Peter gives a list of things they need to diligently pursue such as moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, love, which all come as a result of faith. And Peter says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And the similarities between these two verses are really interesting because both authors speak of the characteristics of believers, and then they follow that with a declaration that the ones he is talking to are brethren, brothers in Christ. And then they both speaking speak of the choosing or the election of the ones they're addressing. And now in Peter's context, he's saying to them that they must be diligent in seeking these characteristics he has mentioned because they provide an assurance of their calling. But when Paul uses it, what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is that he already sees those characteristics in them. And that those characteristics are the evidence, are the confirmation of their calling in his own mind, and they should be an encouragement to them too. But further, Paul clarifies why he has such an assurance of their election in verse 5. Paul says that the gospel didn't come to them in word only. In other words, when Paul preached the good news, they didn't just receive these religious instructions. These empty words which are lifeless and have no effect. And they result in those who hear the truth but do not live it out, just as James says. James says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Empty words. No. Paul says that the gospel came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction meaning that not only did the gospel have a powerful and demonstrable effect on them, but Paul recognizes that the obvious changes he saw in the lives of the people while he was there can only be the work of the Holy Spirit, as he had experienced in his own life, and that the result of these elements is a full conviction, a settled security, or a complete confidence in the fact that what he saw in them was authentic. And we'll see in verse 9 evidence of that as they cast off idols, they turn from the common practices of the day. And even back in Acts 17, uh, some of them, such as Jason, were hauled in front of the authorities with accusations and challenges, much like the apostles in the beginning after Pentecost. And Paul and Timothy saw in them a Holy Spirit-driven attitude that confirms their place as elect as those who will fight for the gospel, as those who will stand for what is right, even in the face of persecution. And here lies our second challenge for reflection. How has the gospel come to us here at Grace Church? We're all about the word, aren't we? We're all about gaining knowledge. We're all about studying original languages and being in Bible studies and getting theology right. Isn't that one of our characteristics? Well, in that, we must question Is the gospel coming to us in word only? Are we just pursuing knowledge? Because just as James says that faith without works is dead, so I say knowledge without faith is dead. King Solomon, the wisest man ever to live, said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he said this, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and I set my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I I realize that this also is striving after the wind, vanity, pointless, futility of no consequence. He says that empty words, knowledge for knowledge's sake is futile. And the missing part of Solomon's lament is a relationship with God. So let's consider our own walk today. Do we see the demonstrable work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? I'm not talking about what Joey said. I'm not talking about visions and miracles. I'm talking about a change of our heart. I'm talking about a lighting on fire of our hearts for the Word of God. And that sparks a change in the way that we live, in our affections, in our hearts towards people around us. Do we love Christ more today than we did a year ago because of our study of His Word? Or are we seeking the bare word only and missing the gospel in it? And there may be some here this morning who are personally seeking the word only. Are you the person who is concerned only about accruing knowledge, about picking up that next theological tidbit, who loves learning, but that understanding never penetrates your heart? Do you lord your wisdom over those who don't agree with you or who know less than you rather than being driven to gospel compassion for them? Do these words of the scripture have a Holy Spirit driven power in your life that forces you to apply what you learn to yourself first, rather than immediately thinking of the other person? As seminarians, especially, we have to guard ourselves against this. I know there are many of you in there, in here. And as a church that prizes God's word so highly, which is absolutely right. We must be careful to make sure that the words we allow to influence us are not just words absent their gospel power. Paul was so sure of the truth of the authentic work of the Spirit in the life of the Thessalonians that he says that he has the same level of certainty of their election as they have of his own character and witness. Look back at verse 5. He says, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And what he means is that when he came to them and he told amongst them and he lived alongside them, they saw his quality. They witnessed the truth of his conviction and of his salvation daily as he ministered to them. Paul says, just as you saw my witness among you and were convinced, so am I assured of your salvation because of the way you work out your faith amongst the people of the city. Paul then explains in more detail the evidence that he has seen Uh, And that Timothy has borne witness to in their lives for him. uh, uh, That make him so thankful to the Lord for them. Paul says that their Christian character and their calling are all evidenced by their conduct. So look at verse 6. And we see that there. First of all, the first point, their conduct is evidenced in their imitation. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And Paul hammers home here his, his key reasons for his assurance of their salvation his constant joyful praying for them is to do with their conduct and how the gospel has impacted them and has changed them and how they're living as a result. And firstly, he pays this huge compliment. He says that they are imitators of him and of Christ. And the word translated imitators sounds a bit like the word, the Greek word is mimetai, which sounds like our English word mimic, which means to imitate or copy. And it's something Paul talks a lot about in his ministry, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And, in, and to the Ephesians in chapter five, verse one, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Having given these instructions to the Ephesian and the Corinthian churches, we might assume that he had given this admonition to the Thessalonians already. But it seems like they already had the idea. If you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter three, We'll see in verses seven and nine uh, that Paul was, was pretty convinced uh, that they already knew what they were doing. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And then verse nine, he says, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So they did what every good student does. They copied their teachers now some might consider paul being a little bit egotistical here by praising them for copying him but let's first remember what paul's job was he was an apostle capital a his life uh, his job is to set the standard for the church and to teach the church how to be in all areas of life but also consider his words again to the corinthians first corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 he says this be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. What Paul was doing was giving them a present, palpable example to follow. As Christ was no longer with them, no longer able to walk physically and talk with them, Paul presented himself as a model, an exemplar that they could emulate. But ultimately, Paul says Christ is the master and he is the one we truly look to imitate, the one that we strive to look like. And the Thessalonians did what was good and what was better. Paul says they not only imitated him, but also Christ. Now, having watched many American movies, I feel like I have a bit of a grasp on U.S. law. Uh, and and what's, accept, and what's acceptable and what isn't from the standard of U.S. law. Uh, from what I can understand, impersonating a federal officer or any law enforcement officer is a bad thing. Uh, that, that's what I get. Well, as we consider this idea of mimicry, as we look at our own lives, as we look at our church, we must ask the question, if someone was to attempt to convict us of imitating Christ, of imitating Paul even, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Would our lives present enough substance for someone to point at us and say, yes, for sure, this guy is trying to be like Jesus? Or for a new Christian, uh, a baby Christian coming to our church, would they say, wow, I really see the principles of the New Testament. These guys are trying to be like Paul. The big issue today with so many churches seemingly wanting to look like the world is that Christians are flaunting their liberties to the extent of making themselves indistinguishable from unbelievers. The reality is this. Paul commends the Thessalonian church as a model church, not because they pandered to the culture, not because they weakened their stances, not because they integrated modern Roman and Greek ideas, not because they, they created their own version of Christianity. No. He praised them because they were striving to look more like Christ because their lives shone with such gospel brightness that those around them couldn't help but identify them as Christ followers. And the amazing thing about all of this is that all of this happened in a period of tribulation. Not the ease, the relative ease with which we live in the West. First, Paul spoke of their conduct of imitation. But now we're gonna focus on their conduct in tribulation. Tribulation. Look at the second half of verse six. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians chapter three, verse three, tells us that one of the reasons Paul sent Timothy was this, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. And that word Paul used there, disturbed, is a word in Greek which means to be agitated. But it can also be a term which means to be deceived, to be won by someone flattering and trying to ingratiate themselves with you. And one commentator put it like this. He said, It is probable that the misfortunes of the new converts, the Thessalonians, would provide opportunity for Paul's opponents to show them exceptional kindness and so perhaps beguile them into adopting their own views. Now at this point in my preparation, I had to stop and push back from the desk as we say and consider what Paul is saying here. And it really challenged my own heart. Think about these precious believers. Paul and Silas come and visit them and begin teaching. Their hearts are taken by the truth of the gospel. And they live amongst rabid paganism and idolatry. All of the trappings of the time that we can imagine. And they begin to turn from that. Day by day, they eagerly come to hear the teaching about this Jesus, who is Messiah, the savior the Jews had been waiting for. The one who provides an answer to all the sickness and pain and sin and evil that they must have so easily seen in their culture. And many of them become Christians. They reject the old way and their lives are transformed and immediately these baby believers are faced with persecution. One commentator said this, to become an adherent openly of that gospel was a courageous act. It was to court not only derision but open violence. It demanded vigorous self-denial and a willingness to surrender personal comfort, honor, property and perhaps life itself. Their guides are torn from them, and they're left on their own to fend for themselves, as it were, with with whatever Paul and Silas left with them. Jason and a number of them are hauled in front of the authorities. Mandates are laid down before them. They're persecuted, restricted, and punished, and they flourish. They flourish. This church, a year old maybe, is forged in the fires of persecution, and what's the result? A church full of believers who demonstrate the character, calling, and conduct of true believers whose Holy Spirit-fueled witness is given testimony by all who know them. And that challenged me with the relative ease that that my faith has grown up in, with, with relative little challenge. What a wonderful testimony they were. And you, Grace Church, at least in one way at one point in time, have met a challenge that is along these lines. It's easy for you guys, especially if you've been here a long time, to come and forget how much of a worldwide effect Grace Church has. And as someone who watched you from far away and how you handled COVID, how you stood with your pastors who tried to lead you biblically through this difficult trial, you, Grace Church, were an encouragement to my heart. And while COVID is not the same as the persecution and tribulation these dear believers were facing, It was a time when your conduct was made evident to the world. And yes, you were criticized as the Thessalonians were, but you stood fast. Pastor John stood fast, the elders stood fast, and you as a church stood fast. And I believe that if Paul had been looking on at that time, he would have said, I'm giving thanks constantly for you, for your perseverance, for your love of Christ, for your love of one another, for fellowship and for your love of the church. The Thessalonians faced their trials how? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. Not a joy that came from themselves, not a sadistic joy of being targeted or enduring pain, but an inexplicable joy that can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. The word charas that is used there means the experience of gladness. How can one be glad during suffering? Well, I think James explains it well. And he uses the same word that Paul does here. James chapter one, verse two, I'll read it for you. He says, consider it all joy, caras, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is the same word, endurance, that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians one, verse three. Steadfastness, hupomone, endurance, fortitude, patience. The Thessalonians were able to flourish under fire. They were able to be glad for their trial because they knew it would bring them closer to Christ. And this is another evidence of the authenticity of their faith because phony faith in times of trial fades away. But theirs stood strong. May we, in similar circumstances, have the same attitude, a similar perspective. And wasn't that the perspective of Christ? Didn't he face tribulation? the worst trial for us? Did he balk at the cross before him? Did he seek or flee or renege on his mission? No, that's why we must be mimetai of him. That is why when difficulty comes, we must look, yes, to our pastors, to those who are a good example to us, but more importantly, to the only one who has never failed, who has lived that perfect life, who went to the cross for us, the most perfect exemplar that we have, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what is the result of ones who have imitated in tribulation both Paul and Christ? Look at verse seven. They become an example. Chapter one and verse seven. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This baby church became an example. The word is tupos, which sounds like our English word, type. Type. And the idea behind tupos is an impression, an indent, a mark as the result of a blow. And one example is, is a stone pressed into wet ground. That when you pull that stone out, it leaves an impression, a mark. Not a copy, but a mold. Uh, and, and that's an amazing example, this, this idea of an outline. The real thing has left its shape in the ground. And that's what happened with the Thessalonians. Paul and Silas left an impression on them and they emulated what they had seen. But then the right, the right thing happens. They then also become an example for other believers to follow. Not just believers in their city, but those throughout the whole region of Macedonia and Achaia, which was huge, Word traveled far and wide. To get from Thessalonica up in the north of Macedonia down to Sparta, down in the south, it's a 560 kilometer journey. And words spread all up and down Achaia. They became a model church to all. But it doesn't end there, does it? It's not just them being a model church that has spread. Look at verse eight. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also every place. Paul says their gospel witness has spread too. He says the word of the Lord, the gospel has sounded forth. It's rung out like a clarion call to the surrounding regions. And he repeats this idea in another way to emphasize it. He says that the word of their faith has gone out, it has left, it has departed, it has permeated Macedonia and Achaia. And he said it extends to every place. And he may mean in every place in Macedonia and Achaia, but regardless, that's a a huge area. He's painting the picture of the extent, the breadth. And that's a word that we know, isn't it? Someone we know uses that word very well. Pastor John is renowned for saying that he took care of the depth and the Lord took care of the breadth. And the reality is that Grace Church has far exceeded even the extent of the Thessalonian church in terms of gospel reach. I'm so glad Joey said what he did. Because this church has missionaries with GMI all over the world, hundreds plus missionaries all over the world. Training centers with TMAI, 18 all over the world, 18 different countries, and hopefully closer to 50 in the next 20 years. Grace to you in numerous countries on the radio and and, and giving out materials to pastors and training people, seminarians who go out every year to, to the U.S. and then into the rest of the world too. And on a personal note, I graduate in May, so we would appreciate your prayers for us as we go back, hopefully, to pastor in the U.K., so yes, as we reflect on Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonian church, we can also say he would give thanks for Grace Church, for your gospel witness. Paul says to them that he has no need to say anything to them in this area. In this area of gospel witness, they are exemplary. Now verse nine introduces the final characteristic that Paul commends this model church for, and it's a wonderful one. Commitment to Christ. And it's demonstrated here in two ways, what the Thessalonians turned from and what they turned to. But first, Paul explains that people from all over the region are reporting the way the Thessalonians received Paul and Silas. Uh, I think if you have an LSB, it might say uh, the entrance that they had. But it's talking about the reception, the way they were received. And one commentator puts it this way. He says that the missionaries gained access not only to their friendship, but to their hearts and consciences. So even the way the Thessalonians received their missionaries and their message was a great witness. But the greater witness was what they did in their turning. So first of all, what did they turn from? In one word, idolatry. Consider the effect it had on the city when this group of people, a mix of Jews and Gentiles, wholesale rejected the accepted practices and norms of the day. Thessalonica was a hotbed of religious influence due to the importance of the city along a major trade route, both by road and by sea. Thessalonica was along the Ignatian Way, which was a major Roman road, and it had the the largest harbor in the area. So it was a huge port, the most important port city uh, for trade and for all of those things. So this was a place where cultures, religions, and people met from all over the world and the archaeological remains of Thessalonica have yielded evidence of mass syncretism and they see that due to the mix of the different idols of the different deities that they found and they're all jumbled in together there's no separation they were influenced by the Romans and Greeks at various points but also by the Egyptian cults particularly the cult of Serapis whose followers would have had major issues with the teaching of the early church again one archaeologist said this The most notable deity of Greco-Egyptian religious syncretism is Serapis. Serapis is a union of Greek and traditional Egyptian gods. He became associated with the sun, healing, fertility, and even the underworld. Later, he would be celebrated as the symbol of the universal god by the Gnostics. So even in their cults, they were syncretistic. They were just bringing anything in. It was just a hodgepodge of all of these different ideas. So when Paul says that they turned away from idols, they were not just stopping having a little shrine in their home. They were rejecting the accepted order of the day. They were saying no to the current tide and trends of society. They were rejecting the whole system they'd grown up in, ritual, worship, and offerings. And Think about the accusation that was made against them in Acts 17 verse 6. When Jason and his companions are dragged before the authorities, they say, these men who have upset the whole world. So great was their offense to the people. It was like the whole world was on fire. Now that phrase would send shivers down the spine of many churches today. Upset the world? No, we can't do that. We have to live alongside the world and figure out what points of confluence we have and try and win the world by accepting what we can of it and meeting halfway. What, a, what better definition of syncretism could you come up with? The Thessalonians said no. We stand on the gospel. We reject this world and its trappings. We recognize the error and we are going to turn away from all of that to Christ. And the root of the word translated there turn means to convert, to change, to turn against, turn your back on and even repentance is part of the idea. It's the word that Paul uses in Galatians 4.9 when he warns them about coming into a relationship with God and then being tempted to turn back to weak and worthless elemental things. Well, the Thessalonians identified the weak and worthless elemental things and had turned in the opposite direction and it shook the city into uproar. What they turned from is important but not as much as what they turned to or who they turned to. Look at verse nine. How you turned to God from idols to serve a true and living God. This is a wholesale rejection of everything they'd ever been taught. And even in the wording Paul uses, he contrasts the idea of idols as something uh, uh, inanimate and fake and dead with the true God who is living and real and alive. Their newfound faith was one that was tangible because it was based on the reality of the one true God. So extreme was their witness in this that one of the charges brought against Jason and his friends is that they were accused of saying that that there was another king, not Caesar, but Jesus. What a wonderful accusation to be made against you. This is true commitment to Christ, the rejection of the pantheon of gods that they had been exposed to in favor of one true universal God and King, Jesus Christ. So let's consider that analogy we used before. If someone wants to come and watch our lives for the next year, would there be evidence enough to convict us of this, of the idea that Jesus is our King? Or are we still willing to blur the lines between Christianity and the world? Are we willing to allow the pressures of societal norms to slowly rub away the borders of our theology and draw us deeper into a position that seeks unity at all costs? And not just unity within the church, but unity with the world. Many are so afraid of the exclusivity of the gospel that this is the path they choose They don't want to sound legalistic or that there's too much of a gap between Christians and non-Christians. Well, there is a gap. There is a gap there. And it's a gap caused by Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a gap. And he says there are only two paths. The hard one, which leads to eternal life, and the easy one, which leads to death and destruction. That's a gap. That's exclusivity. Christianity is exclusive. And none of us deserve it hopefully we recognize that none of us have earned our relationship with Christ. None of us hopefully are saying that we are elite and therefore the Lord has chosen us above all the other plebeians. No, the Thessalonians recognize the truth of the idea that James articulates in chapter four, verse four. He says, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, they were so committed to Christ. He meant so much to them, so focused on him, they were that that we're told in, in verse 10 that they were waiting for him from heaven. And just in case we're tempted to think they were waiting for someone else other than Jesus, Paul gives us a little bit more detail. He says, Jesus, the one that the true God raised from the dead, not the God Serapis who supposedly had power over the underworld, but the one true God, who truly has power over life and death. The one he raised, that is Jesus. And the word translated waiting literally means to expect someone or something. And it's the only time this word appears in the Greek New Testament. But it appears outside the Greek New Testament, uh, particularly in the writing of Clement and Ignatius. And when they use this word, they use it only in reference to waiting for Christ, for his coming, And this is really one of the preoccupations of the people at Thessalonica. They were so focused on Christ and his coming. They were so eschatologically aware of what was to come in the future that they were concerned, as we said before, that they had missed the rapture. And that's the point of chapter 4. Paul writes to encourage them because they were concerned that the current persecution they were dealing with was the tribulation. And that tells you how serious and severe their suffering was. And they knew that the the rapture preceded the tribulation. Amen. Amen. They were tempted to worry that they had missed it. But Paul writes and says that they should comfort one another with his words, that they had not missed it and they should wait to continue with what? With hope. What a commitment to Christ they show. And what a hope for the future. They loved their Lord so much that they were eagerly waiting for his return. But as we consider this today, there may be those amongst us who cannot say they share in this eager anticipation of Christ's return. The reason being that Christ's return means judgment for those who have not submitted their lives to him. The Thessalonians had hope and eagerly awaited Christ because look at the end of verse 10. What does he say? He says, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. This was so relevant for them. It was such a real concern for them. They knew Christians weren't supposed to be in the tribulation. The thing is, That's not a universal rescue. It's not a universal rescue. This is a particular rescue. Only for those who have been chosen. Only for those who have submitted their lives to Christ. Who have turned from the idols of this world and thrown themselves at the feet of the one true Savior. And if that's not you today, if you are interested in word only if you are one who rejects Jesus as king, who has not turned away from the idol of your life, from the idol of your sin. If you look at these characteristics that we've talked about and they bring no warmth to your heart, and you see none of this on your life, in your lives, then I beg you today, repent. Turn. Turn away now. Because as Paul says, wrath is coming. And Paul uses a present participle there to indicate that wrath's on its way. The idea is inherent in the word coming. It's coming. It's not stationary, it's moving towards us, and it's coming quickly. We must be prepared. And the thing about this wrath that is coming is that it's a consuming fire that you cannot withstand. It's a tsunami that will destroy everything in its path, it's unrelenting, and it results not in annihilation not in you getting to just spend eternity you know, floating in darkness somewhere or, or complete destruction. It results in eternal torment. There is only one salvation from the infinite wrath of an infinite God to whom our sin is an infinite offense. And that is to have an infinite sacrifice for that sin. And there's only one. That one is Jesus. The one whom the Thessalonians were so staunchly committed to Follow their example. Emulate their turning to the one true God and do it today. So Grace Church, Grace Life, as we reflect today, what do we see? As an outsider, although I'd like to think I belong here now after a few years, I see a church that demonstrates the Christian character of the Thessalonians. I see a church of people who have proven their calling through their conduct and their commitment to Christ. We should be encouraged today as we look at the witness of this church and of our pastor, which has gone far and wide across the world as a model church. And it would be wonderful to leave it there, wouldn't it? To say, yep, job well done, great, we're going to sit here, we're going to rest on our laurels, fantastic. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. But that's not the purpose of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. What does Paul say in addition to his three chapters of praise for the Thessalonians? Well, in four and five, he gives them some extra things to think about. He corrects some things and gives them some extra reminders. And we think, but this is a model church. Why is he saying this other stuff to them? Well, the important thing to note is that a model church is not a perfect church. And I'm sure you would agree that grace church is not a perfect church. Because like the perfect man and the perfect woman, it doesn't exist. So what does Paul say? Turn with me finally to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as actually you do walk, that you excel still more. And turn the page to, to verse 10, at the end of verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul says to those dear believers, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You've done all I asked. You're walking as you should. You're fighting the battles you need to fight. You have the right theology. You are loving one another. You are witnesses to those around you. So what's his message to them? And if I might be so bold, what might Pastor John's message, Pastor Mike, Pastor Phil's message be to us? Excel still more in your Christian character how your faith impacts your daily needs how your love produces a continual commitment to labour under it how your hope which focused in Christ causes you to be steadfast Christian, excel still more in your confirmation of your calling in your acceptance of the gospel and it's playing out in your life in how you live and love those around you as a model of Christ even to them Christian, excel still more In your conduct, in your imitation of Christ and in your joy at whatever you face in your being an example to those around you. Christian, excel still more. In your commitment to Christ, in your turning away from sin and the idols in your life, in your daily battle against the temptation to join the world and renege on what you have believed, in your passion for Christ and his word, in your love of prayer and as you toil in that daily and in your looking to the future, And Christ's return and your glorification, which one day will wipe away every tear and every hurt and the toil and the trial of this world will fall away in all of this Christian church. We must excel still more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Grace Church. I thank you for this fellowship group. I thank you for our pastor and all the elders. We're so grateful for their leadership and their example to us. And we pray for them today that they would excel still more in all areas of life and ministry. But Lord, we submit ourselves to you as well. We ask that you might make us aware of how we can grow, what more we can do, how much closer we need to draw to you, the depths of the love that we should have for you as your children. Help us in all these areas that we have spoken of today, not so that we can have a reputation of our own, not so that we can be puffed up and self-important, not so that others would sing our praises. No, we pray all of this so that you might receive all the glory and honor due your name, that our lives might shine as witnesses of the true light, your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.